0: day this morning, comes from Isaiah 46, 5, 7 in the Old Testament. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me, that we may be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales, hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god, then they fall down and worship. They lift it to their shoulders, they carry it, they set it in its place and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. Our sermon reading today from the New Testament, from 1 Peter 4, 1-11. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, that you might live in the Spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it has been a while, church, since I have last preached here from 1 Peter, but once again, we return right where we left off. Uh, the sermon series is titled, Suffering and Salvation in the Exile. And you know, this is kind of the part of the sermon where I wish I could play so, you know, one of those montages of the start of a new Netflix season, where it sort of gives you brief recaps of what had happened previously, you know, previously on City of Hope you know, First Peter, season 1, you know. Uh, but we don't have the multimedia package for that, and Josiah Rankin, our multimedia superstar, is, is too generous with his time already, so I'm just going to have to give a very brief summation of what is going on here on my own. So, previously in First Peter, we have the Apostle nearing the end of his ministry and life, writing to a group of Gentile Christians scattered across Asia. Uh, you see, Peter was once a Jew who treated Gentiles as less than his fellow Jews and showing favoritism until the Apostle Paul called him out on it. And yet, and yet in 1 Peter, we see here signs of a changed man. He writes to them to prepare them for the incoming persecution that the Roman Empire is about to have them endure, grounding it in the sufferings of Christ himself. And so all throughout this letter and this sermon series, Peter wants us and the church and the people in Asia Minor to embrace sufferings and trials in the midst of unjust, inequitable, and inescapable persecution by seeing themselves as ones who have been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. So this Christ that saved them is now preparing them to face sufferings with grace. What becomes surprising where we last left off in chapter 3 is that our response to such sufferings should be seeking to do good towards others, to bless the world that we live in, and that this would be a sign that we trust in Christ, who is on the throne and his kingdom. But Peter is not done preparing these new Christians on what following Christ would mean for the way that the world would see them and how we should respond in light of how the world views them, and that's where we land In today's text. So before we begin, uh, can we pray together? Father, illuminate your word so that it may be heard clearly, that Christ would be proclaimed, and the gospel would pull our hearts to seek after Jesus, that You would shape your church to love you more, to love our neighbor, and for the renewal of your kingdom. We pray for the preaching of your word to be effective, not because of the man who preaches, but because of your promise that your word is powerful. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, when I was meditating on this text, I was reminded of my senior year in high school. Um, uh, my, my high school, uh, my, 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 my alum, the alumni from the class of 2003 recently just celebrated this 20-year reunion. Um, which I did not go to, because I was just like, oh my gosh, like, I just didn't want just, to just even wrap my head around that. But it got me thinking about my senior year of high school. And I remember having uh, a revival in my faith at, at, in the summertime that had changed me forever. Uh, you see, I was at a youth retreat in New York City. Uh, my parents saw that I was in a, a very spiritual valley, and longed for me to connect, uh, reconnect with my relationship to the Lord and to the church. And you know, like every high school senior that has ever existed, I was completely skeptical of my parents' desire to send me to some random retreat in New York, you know, spending my precious summer days, my senior year, being locked up with other Christians who were also being told by their parents to go. Uh, but you know, like during those three days, a, a very funny thing happened. Uh, through the worship, uh, sermons, prayer, and, and especially one really Thoughtful and caring older brother in Christ uh, that showed me the love of Christ that I had never experienced before. Um, I came during that period of time to surrender my life to Jesus in a way that I, that I hadn't before up to that point. Maybe for the first time ever, I was on fire for the Lord. I was filled with an incredible zeal. But, and I think you all know where this is going, a sense of dread awaited me when I came back from that mountaintop experience. You see, I realized that I would have to go back to school in the fall. And I was one of the only few Christians around in my school. And, you know, admitting that you are a strong Christian uh, in, in, that, in, my, in this, my school setting that I was in was akin to saying that you never wanted to have friends. I realized that, on top of that, I would have to go back to my church where, you know, the youth group was struggling, it was in shambles after a string of youth pastors who had quit year after year. And, and I, of course, naturally being the senior pastor's son, was somehow gifted enough to pick up the pieces. And I just felt this immense burden and stress. I knew I loved Jesus. But the reality of the life that I knew Christ was calling me to live back home and what faced ahead of me seems like that the suffering was paralyzing. I didn't know what to do. Many of us, might feel the exact same way when we think about the question of how do we live in society? How do we face the sufferings that await us? Which is the heart of what Peter is trying to address in these 11 verses. How does being united to Christ in his sufferings change the way we think about interacting with the world, the church, and our relationships around us? You know, it's a question that American Christians for generations didn't necessarily have to wrestle with, with Christianity being the dominant religion for generations. I was reminded of this uh, living in Charleston, South Carolina for a couple of years. Downtown Charleston was a reminder of, in American history of what the, the church's influence on the world. There is a church on almost every street corner. And, in fact, the assumed reality of Christ as the center of public life was sort of the, 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 the mission of Charleston itself. It's called the Holy City. Even today, you still can't build a building higher than the tallest church steeple in Charleston, much to the dismay of many high-rise developers. Today, our nation is in a completely different set of circumstances. The country, if you look at the news, appears to be bursting at the seams when it comes to the issue of what it means to be a public Christian in 2023. Some Christians fear persecution at the workplace or in schools. Other Christians are more concerned about how much power we will lose or gain politically. Others worried about Christianity's public witness to the world and apologizing on behalf of bad actors. Maybe some of you come to church today worried about what it would mean if someone outside the church in your circles genuinely asked you the question of, hey, do you really believe in all that Bible stuff? Do you really believe that Jesus says who he said that he was? Do you really believe that Jesus asked his believers to live the way that he has called them to live? So today's text is very much to try and help prepare the believers in Peter's age, these new Gentile Christians, about the reality of what it means to be a Christian in a world, a nation, a city, that views Christianity with great skepticism and suspicion. And so today we're going to talk about three things that Peter wants them to grasp, all of them leading into one another. Uh, Number one, uh, Christ prepares us to face the world. Uh, Number two, the world prepares us to face rejection. And number three, rejection prepares us to proclaim Christ. Christ prepares us to face the world. The world prepares us to face rejection. Rejection prepares us to proclaim Christ. So let's examine first how Christ prepares us to face the world. Chapter four picks up where chapter three ended. We're talking about how the humiliation of Christ and his suffering leads to his exaltation in heaven seated at the right hand of God. So Peter repeatedly throughout this letter reminds us that that how we are to view our suffering, our inescapable circumstances, are through the life of Christ and his suffering and his ministry here on earth. And so the church is to equip themselves and model themselves in the same way of thinking, this is in verse 1, about what it means to live in the here and now, to be prepared to suffer as those who are united to Christ. Sort of arming ourselves, this is like battle language, all right, with a different mindset in the way that they think about the suffering they embrace. And then Peter makes this bold claim. They have ceased from sin. Not to suggest that suffering somehow absolves your sins or somehow the act of suffering purifies you from your sin, right? This isn't some like, you know, sort of cheap workout slogan, you know, no pain, no gain, with the rock screaming at you to wake up at 4 a.m. in the morning. No, this is, this is like you suffer to be a sign of the redemption that Christ has won for you. Uh, that you are, uh, you are in God's eye, justified, redeemed, made clean by his precious blood. So, those who have ceased from sin in the flesh have ceased because the curse of sin has been defeated on the cross that Jesus suffered. His death, with our sins placed upon him, has been conquered through his sufferings. And so when the church considers how Christ prepares us to face the world, we are reminded that when we suffer, we are walking in the pathway of the Savior who has already purified us. In other words, the point here that Peter is trying to make is that suffering in and of itself is not a pathway to sanctification. Rather, suffering is an indicator that believers are trusting in the one who has conquered their sin, and they endure it on the ground of Christ's redemption. So in other words, when you suffer for your faith and suffer derision, mockery, rejection, ostracization, it should immediately drive you to remember that Christ has redeemed you. You are walking in the pathway of your Savior. Peter goes further down to tie this to the practical way that this preparation of the mind leads to everyday change in verse 2. That they would no longer live for human passions, but for the will of God. You see, in other words, Christianity is more than a transformation of the mind. It's in every aspect of life they live now, lies in trying to understand what God's will for their life is. Now, the error that lies in the reading of this passage is to believe that suffering as a Christian inherently means that we are doing the Lord's will. Oh, if I'm suffering, it must mean that I'm going along the pathway of what God is calling me to do. But, but God's will in this passage is not being used in that way. Uh, what we would describe as God's decreative will, or, or you know, sort of God's decreed uh, pathway for life. Uh, rather, when Peter is using God's will here, he is describing God's moral will. His laws, His commandments that He's expressively given to us in Scripture. So in other words, when we're talking about God's will, we're not talking about this uh, sort of ambiguous, mysterious God's will that's sort of locked away for us that we can't figure out. And this is an important distinction for us to understand because too often we always talk about wanting to hear about God's will from His decreative will rather than His moral will. Let me explain this. Right. So we say things like, Lord, I'm, I'm suffering. What is sort of the right combination of prayers and crypto investments that I can make to get my suffering back in line, right? Uh, and we're sold into this sort of human-centered idea. If, if, I, if I do the right sequence, if I make exactly the right choices in the right manner and, and I do deny the world but I, but I follow this sort of expressive pattern, then the blessed life. Me, mind. Then I will know how to break through suffering. If I, if I deny myself enough, give enough, pray enough, I can change the course of history. Like Loki in some multiverse paradise, if we can just sacrifice in that right order, then we'll get it. This is madness. This is not what Peter is talking about when he's talking about God's will and Christ preparing you for the world. Denying human passions isn't about personally gaining God's greatest for life for you now materially. Denying human passions is helping us to see clearly the goodness of God's moral law. In other words, the unjust suffering of a Christian living in a world hostile to Christians shouldn't lead us to despair in trying to figure out the code. Or, on the flip side of that, giving up and falling into worldly escapism. Rather, the suffering of a believer actually drives them closer to understanding the heart of God's commands and why God calls us to live a holy life. It's not for superiority over the world, you see. It's to see the goodness of God. This is why Peter spends verse 3 with a laundry list of past of, of the life that the Gentiles would have lived in their past. You know, these Gentile Christians that would have seen these things, this list, as a normal part of their culture and lifestyle. As those living in a Greco-Roman society, sensuality, passions, drunkenness, sexual misconduct, idolatry, these were ordinary parts of the God-worship of Dionysus, the Greek god of wine, ecstasy, and revelry. This cultural celebration of this was, was baked into holidays, family gatherings, patriotic events. It was considered to be a marker of who you were to be able to participate in these ceremonies and festivals. And Peter says, Christ has prepared you to face the world and see those things in your culture that you were blind to in a different light. Beyond national identity, beyond cultural expression, beyond sexual normative practices, a way that reveals the character of God and his holiness, the work of Christ, that your heart will begin to see those things differently. And that's what leads us to our second point today, that the world prepares us to face rejection. If Christ is preparing us to see the world differently, to face the world differently, the world will prepare us to face rejection. You see, once Christ has changed our minds and our hearts and our wills, we will realize that when we look at things that once just seemed like a normal part of everyday life and culture, we can no longer see them in that same lens. You know, the the curtain has sort of been pulled back on what they really are. Part of a culture that tries to provide meaning, significance, worth, apart from God, and really are just, when you see their end, all the way through, just cheap pathways into despair, loneliness, and loss of self. Uh, The Nigerian-American author, Christine Emba, and journalist, articulates this in her exploration of our current American culture's view of intimacy. Uh, She shares her story of her time at Princeton University where uh, at the time she was a committed evangelical Christian, Uh, she found herself being laughed and mocked for the notion that she would save herself for marriage the notion that you just didn't act on your physical impulses, that you, know, you were sort of robbing yourself of the liberation that the cultural revolution provided, that, that Im- intimacy was meaningless and not a big deal, and yet simultaneously at the same time vital to the human experience and that you should do it as much as possible. Uh, these were all seen as cultural norms and pathways to living the best life possible. And so as she researched this, and discovered that this chaos of this movement created not deeper meaning, not deeper connection, not deeper self-actualization, but rather the, expression, the self-expression of sexuality was liberating for humanity that was a myth. It furthered the abuse of women rather than their protection. It increased racism towards races, races that were viewed as undesirable. It made any kind of desire, even ungodly desires that led to physical harm, impossible to challenge under the guise of you-do-you and consent. While she does absolutely believe this consent, she she marvels in the book that she, uh, she writes that consent is not merely enough. We have to ask ourselves the question, is this good for us? Is this morally right for us? And what she discovered is that it cheapened the view of humanity into mere swipe rights and swipe left rather than seeing the dignity of the person on the other side of the screen. Now, we in our time are far more overstimulated when it comes to graphic imagery in our age that would make the Greco-Romans of Peter's age blush. And yet we dare not question, hmm, is this why we have the greatest loneliness crisis in human history. Christine Emba's conclusion is that there needs to be a different kind of revolution than the, world, than the one that the world has been offering. One that promoted not just a caving into our passions and our lusts to the unknown gods of our age, but rather finding it in the pathway of denial and restraint and questioning. And let me humbly offer one step further in her thesis than simply just denying passion. Uh, Peter's exhortation to Christians is that the reality of seeing the world in God's eyes will fundamentally change the way that we view our social daily lives together. Whereas the human body is to be loved and treated with dignity, not abuse and mutilation. Where the promises of sensuality and passions are seen for the smokescreens that they are, the true relationship where idolatry in the name of toleration leads to nothing but lawlessness, where the Christian offers a more, different, more dignified narrative. The world will prepare them for rejection. Gentile Christians with Gentile relationships, family members, friends, you see, they will see a sudden stopping of all of those rituals and they will face the backlash for that decision. For all the good that Christians might do in the world, in society, in life, when you reject the cultural sins of a nation and stop participating in its idolatry, Peter makes it plain for us, you will be maligned. You will be mistreated. You will be miscategorized, and you will face judgment for the world. And he wants the church to be prepared for that. Um, This should be a wake-up call for us. And I'm putting myself in this category when I say this. Uh, uh, where we should think, we we should dismiss the notion that think that everyone will love us because we're Christians and that we should avoid any attempt to be rejected. Uh, Let me just speak for myself uh, as a recovering people pleaser who relapses more often than he would like to admit. Uh, The reality is that too often in the history of my life, I've caved into the pressure of trying to be loved by others rather than trying to be faithful to suffer as Christ did and being rejected and maligned in the world. So Peter is offering a corrective to, for those of us in that camp, the people-pleasing camp, to let us know that we need to embrace this kind of rejection because we can't go back to the life the way it was before we knew Christ. We see these sins in our lives for what they are. And to partake in them again is to attempt to believe the lie again and again. As though this time, the sensualities, the passions, those things will give us what it promises. When we know that's not the case. We know that we need to live a more fulfilling life found in the person of Christ. But you know, there is an opposite danger to people pleasing, which is where we look at rejection and being maligned. And Christianity becomes the bitter club that beats back the culture in talking down to them in acts of superiority, fear, anger, and separatism. Uh, Peter wants to make it clear that there is a different response, one that faithfully considers how the Christian is to engage the culture. And that's what leads us to our third and final point here today. Uh, Rejection prepares us to proclaim Verse 6 reminds us that through the rejection, the gospel is proclaimed to all, even those who, after hearing the gospel proclaimed, pass away. Uh, the wording in the ESV there can give sort of the impression in verse 6 that Peter, Peter was somehow suggesting that the gospel can be proclaimed to someone after they die. Uh, this is indeed a verse that is the foundation of, of, of some sects of universalism, Maybe those who believe in an intermediary state after death where, you know, someone can accept the gospel. But but such an idea is rejected when we consider the context of Peter's message. Christians, though rejected, can hope because their lives proclaim the gospel to those who are already living. And to those, even those who pass away afterwards, they are raised in the Spirit to new life. In other words, the Christian testimony can bring life in suffering and rejection. And though they face judgment by mere men, they find new life and live in the Spirit as God spiritually lives. You see, Peter is saying this, not to say there is a hope after death. He's saying, fight on, struggle on, because you will be raised to new life, even after death. This is the hope that Peter can constantly gives his his people. The world can often seem like a place of meaningless suffering. And so the Christian looks to the life to come, looks to the eschaton, looks to the end times, and finds their strength today in the realization that the time is at hand, as he says in this text. In other words, the hope that we see in the future is already happening in our present day. We are already living in the kingdom of God. So because of the end of all things is at hand, Everything in the world, all things, all places, people, nations, the Christian can look towards that glorious day and find meaning and purpose to live through the fiercest rejection and hurt from others because of their faith in Christ. But it's more than just their witness through rejection and how they proclaim the name of Jesus. Uh, Now we get to verses 7 through 11, and it gives four ways in which the Christian can now proclaim Christ in the counterculture of the world around them, and none of them involved this bitter club, this separatist position, this disengagement with the world around them. In fact, all of them are rooted in humility and vulnerability, these four exhortations. To pray, to love, to be hospitable, and to serve. I was extremely tempted to outline this section as eat, pray, love, serve. But that would have just been the absolute worst pastor pun available. Uh, so forget I even mentioned it. Um, so let's just talk about these four proclamations. Right? The Christian who recognized that the kingdom of God is at hand today will recognize in verse 7 that the task of proclaiming God's kingdom must be covered with prayer. To be self-controlled and sober-minded is the recognition that God and God alone is the one that makes the Christian life effective. Um, you know uh, this is, uh, as I meditate on this, uh, it reminds me of how much prayer has played a role in our time here over this past year. Um, for those of you know, this month marks the one-year arrival of me back in Maryland, which means, uh, in, in preaching-wise, you have heard me talk for roughly 24 to 25 hours. Um, I'm often reminded of the e- of this reality of the need for prayer each Sunday when I preach because there's nothing that I can do to make you believe in what Scripture is teaching. It's the Holy Spirit's job. Uh, in fact, I marvel many Sundays that all of you would come and listen to me talk for 30 to 40 minutes and not be perpetually annoyed and disappointed in me. Uh, the insecure person that lives inside of me says, Surely you guys must be tired of hearing my voice. And even in my most unbelieving moments, I question, you know, surely this is the Sunday where this congregation says, well, you know, we gave it a good go with this guy, but, you know, we need, we need to move forward. Um, I remember this verse, verse 7. I remember something that is critically important to me in my worst moments, and maybe in yours as well. That God Himself is bringing about the kingdom here at City of Hope. Not the cleverness of my words, not the strength of my rhetoric not the strength of your volunteerism. To the contrary, the only power that comes from our time here in the, in, in the Word, in sacrament, and prayer, but also in the activity of the church is through pleading, praying, exhorting God to work in this time and listen and hear Him speak to us. This isn't just for preaching, you see. This is for every area of our lives. Um, you know, my counselor often reminds me that Christians uh, often... Need to realize that they need to shorten the time between the moment of despair and coming to the Lord in prayer. Um, So often we we put this huge gap between what we're facing and the struggles and difficulties we're facing and when we go to the Lord actually with it. We think to ourselves, oh you know, it's not that bad. Or we think to ourselves, no, I need to handle this on my own. The Lord doesn't need to bother himself with this. Or maybe you're just ashamed and you're saying to myself, you know, I don't want to take the Lord this up to the Lord. Because to do so would admit that something is wrong with me. And um, my counselor frequently reminds me uh, you need to shorten the time and distance between the thinking of suffering and, and what you're going through and taking that up to the Lord in prayer. Seeking his presence, which always comes through. And if there's any momentum in this church, in the Christian walk, and in the life of Christianity as a nation and in the world, it will because we were on our hands and knees to pray for God to intercede. Prayer would not find its endurance if it weren't for the second thing that Peter is calling us to do, and that is to love. He says, above all, love one another. Perhaps echoes of hearing his Savior's voice asking Peter, Peter, do you love me? To love one another earnestly is to model the forgiveness of Christ towards others. When it talks about forgiveness uh, covers a multitude of sins, it's not literally in the sense that you have the power to absolve sins. uh, That's Christ's job. But rather, in loving each other, we are able to look over one another's shortcomings. We see who they are in Christ rather than looking for ways in which they are not like Christ. You see how much harder that is? It's easy to look at someone and go, oh, this is how they're not like Christ. Ah, They're not perfect in all these ways. So easy. I'm a prophet. I'm amazing. Uh, You know what's infinitely harder? To look at a flawed being filled with sin, filled with with real offenses, real guilt, and to say to them, I forgive you. Uh, What does this radically look like in our day and age? Uh, The journalist for uh, The Atlantic and Vox, uh, Liz Brugnan, um, who is a self-professed Christian, Uh, she was a finalist actually for the 2023 Pulitzer Peace Prize. Uh, and, and and the way that she earned that distinction was covering the executions of death row inmates um, who, through the course of two decades of waiting for their death sentence to be executed, were completely transformed and changed into different people. What she saw, uh, more than the personal transformation of the inmates who were contrite, they were, they were adults at this point, um, they had reached what's what's known as sort of a criminal menopause. They were at the age where crime wasn't really in the cards for them anymore. Um, uh, More than seeing the transformation of the inmates, she saw transformation in the victims' families uh, who changed their attitude and posture towards the inmates who committed atrocious crimes against their family. She saw families forgive and pleading the justice system to spare the lives of the ones who had been sentenced to death. And asked for life sentences uh, instead of the death penalty, much to the bewilderment of state officials. In observing this, she wrote uh, the scathing review of our culture and society as a whole when it comes to the concept of forgiveness and how our world does not know how to forgive. She writes this uh, We can put this on the screen. Um, as a society, we have absolutely no coherent story, none whatsoever about how a person who's done wrong can atone, make amends, and retain some continuity between their life before and after the mistake. You see, what she meant by that is, you know, in the culture of our time in 2023, the culture of every generation, the medieval dark ages, the Greco-Roman world that Peter's writing to, our society cannot fathom forgiveness for the guilty. Sure, you know, we'll forgive little, small offenses of of inconsequential nature, but what about forgiveness of the hardest things? What if that person really did that worst thing to you? Uh, Liz Brugnan continues on. The truth is that forgiveness pertains to a situation in which the person is guilty and culpable. That is when the question of forgiveness actually opens. It does not open up when you have a situation where somebody is not responsible for the offense. That, that's not forgiveness. Forgiveness is when you do decide to permanently forego seeking restitution or vengeance. What Brunen understands is deeply Christ-like in nature. Forgiveness is not looking at someone's offenses and excusing it away as though it wasn't their fault, as often we as Christians do. You know, we sort of look at the offense and we sort of blame, oh, you know, it wasn't you, it was, you know, something you ate, or it was, you know, uh, this thing or that thing, Uh, you know, this thing that we often try to do to kind of avoid the, the conflict. No, the gospel decidedly says that we were guilty, that we were deserving of death, deserving of hell, deserving of wrath, that this would have been just. This would have been the just thing to do. And yet, Jesus forgives us. doesn't seek restitution from us and instead takes the judgment on himself. Forgiveness means for us as a body of Christ, that you know, when we consider the gospel of grace and the world around us, proclaiming Christ means forgiving others, maybe even other Christians who have wronged us our friends and families that have wounded us, and release them from the bondage of judgment that we continue to hold them in. Notice what Peter is not saying about forgiveness covering a multitude of sins here. Peter isn't saying forgive and forget. Peter doesn't even say the often misquoted Christian saying that, you know, I'm sure you've heard this before, uh, forgiveness is letting yourself go free. Uh, Not only nowhere in the Bible does that profess the act of forgiving someone is sort of centered only solely for our own benefit, but forgiving someone, for those of you who have truly forgiven, you realize this, it causes sometimes even more suffering to do so. It may mean for you greater humiliation to forgive, a deeper pain and a wound. But you know, this is the pathway of Christ's forgiveness to you, isn't it? He takes the nails; His resurrected body carries the scars. For while we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. The third thing that we see is hospitality. And this is perhaps actually, actually, you may not notice this, but this is actually perhaps the most dangerous act that Peter is asking the church to do. To open one's house to someone meant risking your life. In particular for Christians who are under the threat of persecution, housing an enemy, a potential enemy of the state, would be the quickest way to face suspicion and martyrdom. You see, hospitality is not uh, the way that we think of it today, you know, sort of our pageantry that we like to show, the perfected homes that we display for others, the deals that we found on Facebook Marketplace for, you know, those those nice furniture items. Uh, That wasn't in line of what hospitality was back in Biblical era. Hotels and inns uh, in the Greco-Roman world were notoriously dangerous places. Uh, They were hotbeds for sickness, death, robbery, and other horrible crimes. And so for a Christian to open up their home meant that they were inclined and compelled to create an environment of safety and protection at the risk of their own lives and their own livelihood. In other words, uh, rejection to proclaim the gospel means being hospitable meant exposing yourself to potentially the greatest dangers the world has to offer, risking relationship, life, and death. Think about how this runs against the grain of what we expect the home to be and what life is to be. Uh, we think that vulnerability and the risk of exposure is a threat. And Peter is saying here that is the only way in which Christians can expect to live in a world that will reject them. By opening up our homes and our lives, we may be in a position to provide someone else who is hurting struggling, desperate, longing to feel safe and protected, maybe your home is the only place where that is possible. You see, it's more than just offering up uh, the best recipe you have and cleaning your house. It's allowing for others to feel cared for just as Jesus prepares a place for us in heavenly places, just as Jesus has secured our home in heaven. So Christians can demonstrate the power of Christ to a world safeguarding itself into isolation and loneliness. Finally, uh, number four here in the exhortations, that the Christian community can serve one another with each other's giftings for the sake of the glory of God. A posture of servanthood that seeks the good of others. You know, it seems almost cruel for Peter to tell a people Hurting under the weight of suffering and rejection, hey, go serve the church. But Peter understands what we have all experienced, for those of us who have been involved in public service, that there is indeed a strength that can only come from God when you are hurting, when you are in pain, to give your life to others. And that strength fills us with a joy that cannot be expressed if you were merely just to simply disengage talked about Loki, I need to talk about it again because season two just ended and so you know, I'm just, it's doing it's in my head and there's so many good sermon analogies. But anyway, uh, I'm not going to spoil like much of it for you right now. Um, but Loki, uh, the main character, is uh, talking with this other character about what they should do about the world that is basically essentially burning to the ground. Uh, should they simply let the world burn or is there something else that they could do? And Loki's conclusion uh, to Sylvie, um, this person that he's, a friend that he has, uh, he says that, you know, it is easier just to give up. Uh, But the hard work, uh, the noble work, the better work, is to engage in a way that is meaningful, sacrificial, carrying the burden onto ourselves. And I'll add here, the cross of Christ, carrying up our cross, to walk with Christ in our sufferings, that lifts up Christ in a profound and deep ways to one another and in a way that the world truly needs today. Uh, Loki's a Calvinist, right? So Christian, I'll end with this. This is the heart of Peter's exhortations uh, that our lives, uh, built upon the sufferings of Christ and his exaltation, that has freed us from sin, leads us to embrace rejection from the world not with great anger but rather with great humility. And in the same way Christ has loved and cared for us, while we were guilty, while we were sinners, right, uh, we can proclaim Christ in every areas of our life in prayer, in love and forgiveness, in hospitality, in serving one another and it's my hope for those of us who are facing these challenges in school and work and family especially as we're coming up on a season of life where relationships can be strained in our gatherings together let us seek the humility and vulnerability of Christ let us enter into the suffering not with bitterness but with joy let's pray together